From Liangjiahe, a village on the barren lowest plateau in northwest China, to Zhongnanhai, the center of China's top leadership in Beijing, Xi Jinping has served in various posts at different levels of the government across China, starting in his early years as a junior village official to governing as China's top leader. What's he like as an individual and as a leader? How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? I consider myself a relatively hardworking person. I know very well that people's biggest concerns are education, employment. Income. We can't pursue development through destructive methods, depleting the legacies from our ancestors while exhausting the options for our future generations. The stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance, and principles. You can follow the stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms. Get the unmissable news stories of the day. This is the Beijing Hour. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour. One hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host, Sui, with you on this Monday, October sixteenth, twenty twenty-three. You're listening to the Beijing Hour, coming to you live from the Chinese capital. On today's program, world leaders are arriving in Beijing for the third Belt and Road Forum. China attracts a wave of foreign entrepreneurs from BRI countries. Australians reject a proposal over indigenous rights. In business, China continues to expand support for global companies. In sports, Zheng Qingwen triumphs on home soil to win Zhengzhou title. In culture and entertainment, the Ninth Silk Road International Arts Festival opens in Xi'an. Now today's top stories: Beijing is holding the third Belt and Road Forum for International Cooperation from Tuesday. China says the event bears great significance since this year marks the tenth year since the initiative began. Now, international dignitaries are flying into the Chinese capital, with the Sri Lankan president, the Cambodian prime minister, being among the latest to arrive. Earlier, Kenyan president William Ruto, Chilean president Gabriel Boric, Hungarian prime minister Viktor Orban, and other guests also landed in Beijing. Chinese authorities say representatives from more than 140 countries and 30 international organizations will be attending the forum. A flagship project in the Belt and Road cooperation between Argentina and China has helped the Latin American country regain its position on the global food market. Li Yunqi reports. Argentina is known globally for its grain and meat products. However, poor transport infrastructure has made its agricultural products less competitive on the global market. But the situation was not always like this. Argentina used to have one of the world's most extensive railway networks, but since the 1990s, the country had dismantled or deserted many lines. Buzzing towns along these rail routes became quiet, and the Belgrano Line is one of them. 
Once hailed as one of the country's largest commuter and cargo railways, it had experienced a significant decline. Xiaoyao and his Chinese team were tasked with upgrading this old railway. We carried out on-site survey three times. The railway was in poor condition, with almost no section suitable for proper rail transport. Some tracks were buried in the sand, and others were flooded. In certain sections, trains can only travel 20 kilometers per hour, while in other parts, the average speed was 8 to 9 kilometers per hour. It forced local farmers to give up on railways and turn to trucks, which cost more. The Argentine government decided to work with the Chinese contractors to fix the problem. During his visit to Argentina in 2014, Chinese President Xi Jinping attended the opening ceremony of the upgrade project for the railway via video link. I hope that Chinese and Argentine companies can collaborate and complete the project as soon as possible, turning it into a model of cooperation between China and Argentina, as well as between China and Latin America. I hope the project can contribute to Argentina's economic and social development. The first phase of the project was completed in June this year. The new railway has shortened the trip from a main agricultural region in the north to the port of Rosario from three days to one day. It's also created 5,000 jobs for local people. Belgrano is once again being called a green corridor for the export of beans, wheat, and corn. Coordinator of the project Xiao Yao says it's profoundly changed the transportation landscape in the region. People are delighted, often seen taking photos with the new locomotives or the giant machinery there. The annual freight volume on the line has increased from 76 towns in 2013 to nearly 300 towns, while the transportation cost for agricultural products has been reduced by 20 U.S. dollars per town. The revitalized railway has rekindled Argentina's agricultural exports, with China being one of the primary destinations. 70% of Argentina's beef exports are shipped to China. The two countries officially signed a memorandum of understanding for Belt and Road cooperation last year. For the Beijing Hour, I'm Liu Yunqi. It's been 10 years since China proposed its Belt and Road Initiative. Pakistan has emerged as a key participant of the BRI, with the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor serving as one of its flagship projects. The corridor aims to promote connectivity across Pakistan by a network of infrastructure, and expected to further boost the economic growth of Pakistan. For more about China-Pakistan cooperation under the BRI framework, Zhou Hongyu spoke with Dr. Hassan Dodbud, honorary director of the Center for BRI Original Studies and former project director of the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. Among all the projects of the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. The port of Gwadar is often called the crown jewel for this corridor. What was it like in the past, and what is it like right now? It's a very, very good question.、Uh, it is almost the same story as we have for Shenzhen. People engage in fishing only. The only source of living is fishing, and perhaps some tourists if they are traveling.、Uh, less developed, not connected with the urban centers, and and very close to Iran, but、uh, not connected with any part of the. Part of the country, both inwards and also、uh, eastward and westward. So, what the transformation that actually has come in is because the project and the city has actually come in the forefront and in the discussion both at the national and international level. And sometimes this becomes challenging also, but this is also rewarding in a sense that the infrastructure being built through China-Pakistan economic corridor 
like the airport, which is going to be inaugurated next year, inshallah. And also the vocational training center, the university, the port itself. Locals are employed and also through the universities. This is very useful in a, in a way that people of Gawadar has now, have now actually realized the potential of their great city. Uh, they are now looking at various avenues to, uh, to increase their livelihood in a socio-economic sense. There's an analogy that the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor is the first chapter in the symphony of the Belt and Road Initiative. So as a pivotal zone of the BRI, what messages can this corridor convey to the rest of the world? For me, Pakistan is the buckle of the belt. We remain the center point as, as we speak. Our connectivity between China has improved significantly and it is going to improve further. And then the speed of railway getting much better. The more people they come together, more people-to-people interaction takes place, more Pakistani scholars go to China and Chinese scholars come. This provides the, us to actually benefit from the true spirit of ancient Silk Road. And this is the spirit we would like to take to the rest of the world. More people interaction, understanding each other culture and working within their own characteristics. Chinese working in their own Chinese characteristics. We are working in our own. And in that case, uh, we can actually help the world to get better, more peaceful. I think CPAC and Belt and Road uh, Initiative demonstrate that if there is commitment a positive commitment and trust between leadership, uh, anything can happen. So this is the message perhaps we would like to take to the rest of the world, to Afghanistan, to, to Central Asia, which is in, in need of uh, regionally integrated countries and perhaps how the investment and economies of ASEAN countries are getting closer to China. We would like to follow the same way and perhaps become a better place for more investment to flow from other countries. That was Dr. Hassan Dabbat, honorary director of the Center for BRI and Regional Studies and former project director of the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. Over the past decade, the Belt and Road Initiative has helped create a profound connectivity in many parts of the world, drawing entrepreneurs from connected nations to establish a foothold in the vast and promising Chinese market. These entrepreneurs have recognized China's immense potential as a key market for their products and services, tapping into expansive consumer base and the ever-growing middle class, Jiang Tao reports. Thomas Fonte Benitez from Argentina arrived in China seven years ago for a master's program at Tsinghua University. After graduation, he served as an investment advisor to the Argentine embassy in China for two and a half years. He realized that the economies of Argentina and China complement each other, which motivated him to establish his own company, Super Bowl, in China. Because Argentina is very strong in, in the food industry, producing both you know, different cereals and food and meat and wine and uh, all the things that China needs to feed, to feed their massive population. And also Chinese consumers are eating better and better food every year. And... Um, Ourselves, Argentina, can benefit from China's te- rapidly developing technology because China's technology is, is not only super advanced, but also very cost efficient. So for a developing country like Argentina, being able to access this technology is very important. Over the years, Benitez's company has grown to a team of 12 employees and can now distribute its products to rural areas in China.
Looking back on his business journey in China, he considers it a dream come true to have built everything from scratch. Well, it's been an incredible ride for me, from coming to China with almost no Chinese knowledge, to right now I can fully work in Chinese and、uh, creating products, manufacturing them in factories across China. Another foreign entrepreneur who has been drawn to the Chinese market is Dieter Van Onkelen from Belgium. He has been involved in a number of projects ranging from social media to food and beverage for several years. Three years ago, he set up a trading company by fully making the use of the vast network provided by the BRI. Today, he can ship a wide range of Chinese and European products to different continents. Vanonkelen believes that entrepreneurs can unlock even greater business opportunities in the future by fully embracing and integrating with the BRI. My first advice would be to further eliminate trade barriers and establish more bilateral trade agreements, which would help to expand access between two countries' markets and increase economic growth. Belgium is a small but pretty interesting country. The country enjoys a strategic location in Europe. We have two seaports and several airports, making it really an international commerce hub. Currently, I think the pharmaceutical, food and beverage, and also the chemical industries are the ones to look forward to. For many participating countries of the BRI, like Bulgaria. Connectivity is exactly what they can harness to their advantage. Ivo Gunchev is the vice chairman of the Bulgarian Chinese Chamber of Commerce and Industry. He believes the initiative will bring more substantial benefits, particularly in emerging sectors like digital connectivity and green energy, creating a more tangible impact. We've seen that the digital economy is here to stay. We've seen Bulgarian companies increasing their presence on Chinese e-commerce platforms.、Uh, but I believe this is just the beginning.、Uh, many of them are only entering this space now, and I think that it will continue to expand and, and to cover vast parts of the BRI、um, as as digital connectivity、um, between、uh, Belt and Road countries、uh, deepens further. To date, China has signed more than 200 cooperation documents under the BRI with over 150 countries and 30 international organizations. Over the past decade, the annual trade volume between China and the nations along the Belt and Road has doubled, surging from one trillion U.S. dollars to over two trillion. For the Beijing Hour, this is Jiang Tao. 南通呢是我们全国全省。南通 is one of the areas with the highest aging levels in China. Thirty percent of our residents are aged over sixty. 但是我们南通培养的人才一般都不会留在南通。Young people invariably choose to leave to work in big cities. Renowned for the longevity of its citizens, Nan Tong offers us a snapshot of. How China is dealing with its demographic shift and aging challenge. Tune in to our special program, "Aging in China: The Story of Nantong," and meet the seniors and their families, caregivers, and experts on Monday, October the twenty-third, China's Seniors' Day. We captured the unprecedented attack by Hamas. Israel is gearing up for the next stage of the war. The conflict so far has killed over 4,100 people on both sides. Meantime, Lebanon's Hezbollah and Israel have exchanged fire along their border, and mass evacuations are continuing in northern Gaza, despite humanitarian groups are saying they have nowhere to go. Ongoing water and electricity shortages have also been worsening the crisis. John Gambrell has more from Jerusalem. 
That's the real question right now, is when the ground offensive is going to start. We've had the Israeli military in the last couple of days say that it was going to start soon, that it was going to involve air, sea, and land forces, but we haven't seen the start of it yet. Now, uh, there has been some reporting suggesting it might be because of weather. There was inclement weather in Jerusalem here where I am with rain, high winds. We did hear a fighter jet overhead, so they're continuing to fly combat operations. They're continuing these airstrikes, and meanwhile, there's also these uh, this back and forth barrage of fire that we've seen with Hezbollah over the over the last few hours we've seen Hezbollah fire anti-tank missiles and rockets into Israel that killed at least one person and forced the Israelis to cordon off uh, up to four kilometers away from the border and tell those close to the border to hide in their safe rooms Israel responded with artillery fire as well as an airstrike in Lebanon we don't know exactly what happened with that airstrike they have published some black and white footage of bombs dropping on targets but we don't know where that was or when that was. So going forward, it's unclear whether this is going to open a regional conflict. Iran has made comments suggesting that it would come in if Israel goes ahead with this ground offensive. And that's why we've seen the United States put an aircraft carrier in the eastern Mediterranean and with another on the way. They're trying to back up Israel as this offensive looms. And it comes as Israel is has this siege on the Gaza Strip where they're stopping the supply of food, water, medicine, fuel, and electricity. That's left, every, that's left everyone there in the dark. And it's really just exacerbated this humanitarian crisis that we now see. Those who are stuck there say that they're trying to get water any way they can. Some are even trying to get just the tiniest droplets of water out of their water pipes. And some of this water, given the fact that the uh, plants are all shut down because there's no electricity, has uh, salt water in it. And some of it even has raw sewage in it, just making it an even more dangerous situation for the people. That was John Gambrell reporting. Hospitals in Gaza are in a dire situation with the number of wounded remaining high amid shortages of medical supplies. Meanwhile, many people in the northern part of the territory have decided to stay in their homes despite an evacuation order. Noor Harazin reports from a local hospital. It is a catastrophic situation here in the uh, hospitals. I am uh, inside Shuhada Al-Aqsa Hospital, which is located in Deir al-Balah in uh, southern Gaza. And uh, behind me, uh, the body bags of tens of Palestinians that were killed during Israeli strikes on different areas around the uh, southern Gaza. And southern Gaza is basically where the Israeli army asked the Palestinians to evacuate from uh, northern Gaza and central Gaza City uh, too. We have been witnessing uh, injuries, people killed, and the body bags behind me are from people that were killed today. They are from Gabayan family. Um, it's basically a whole family. Uh, the, the home was destroyed while the people were inside uh, the home. We're talking about men, women, and also several uh, children from a Gabayan family. Well, there is a number of people who've decided to stay in their homes in northern Gaza and also in central Gaza City because they do believe that this is the second Palestinian Nakba will they might leave their homes and not come back and became basically Palestinian uh, refugees. While there is a, also a very big number, hundreds of thousands of people who already left their homes and they are taking shelter in some uh, hospitals and schools and maybe relatives' homes. 
here in uh, southern Gaza in different uh, cities in southern Gaza like Deir el-Balah, Nusayrat, uh, Khan Yunis, Rafah. These are all cities are located in uh, southern Gaza. However, people now realize that basically nowhere is safe in Gaza because there is an ongoing Israeli attacks and airstrikes in uh, northern Gaza and central Gaza city and also in southern Gaza. Now is Noor Harazin reporting on the current humanitarian situation in Gaza. Both Israel and Hamas are denying that a ceasefire has been agreed for southern Gaza. Egyptian sources have previously said a five-hour truce had been agreed. It was reportedly planned to let aid into the enclave and for foreign passport holders to leave via the Rafah border crossing. But despite diplomatic efforts, the only crossing point between Gaza and Egypt remains closed. You are listening to the Beijing Hour. Coming up, Australians reject a proposal over indigenous rights. Dive into news like never before with Deep Dive, the podcast from CGTN Radio. Join our global reporters for captivating stories and thought-provoking conversations. Search Deep Dive on your favorite podcast platform and get ready to dive in. 19 minutes past the hour, Australians have rejected a proposal to change the country's constitution in a historic referendum over the weekend. Voters were asked if they wanted indigenous people to be recognized in the constitution through the creation of a body that could advise the government. The feat is a blow for Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, who promised the referendum as part of his election campaign last year. Adam Hancock has this report from Sydney. This referendum was meant to unite Australians. Instead, it appears to have created more division. There are just under a million indigenous people in this country and the healing process could take a long time. We call on First Nations people to, to come together first and, and go through a, a, you know, a smoking ceremony that we do to ward off evil spirits and uh, heal people as they come into our country. That's Fred Hooper, who chairs the Murrawari People's Council. He was one of the so-called progressive no-voters. That's Indigenous Australians who wanted this referendum to fail. The process was flawed from the very beginning. The government should have gone to the people and they should have implemented a, a truth-telling commission and a treaty commission and gave the Australian people the truth about what happened in this country. Australians were asked to decide if they wanted to change the constitution to recognise Indigenous people by creating a parliamentary advisory body called The Voice. The idea was rejected by all six Australian states. Paul Strangio is a professor of politics at Monash University. He thinks that many voters were left confused. The details of the voice would be worked out in the parliamentary process once the referendum was passed. However, the no side capitalised on the lack of detail and to sow doubt and stoke fears. Supporters of the voice claim that it would have benefited Indigenous people who remain the most disadvantaged group in Australia. They suffer from lower life expectancy and higher rates of suicide and imprisonment compared to non-Indigenous Australians. Sally was one voter who backed the referendum. We all think politicians need to do a better job of listening to the people and this is a mechanism for that to hopefully redress some of the systemic discrimination and disadvantage that Indigenous people have suffered in this country and unfortunately continue to suffer. As the dust settles on a divisive debate, Indigenous people like Fred Hooper are looking to the future. He thinks it's time for leaders to say sorry. I'd call for an apology by King Charles. Come to my country and apologise on my country. 
For the Beijing Hour, I'm Adam Hancock in Sydney. An exit poll shows Poland's ruling Law and Justice Party took a lead in Sunday's parliamentary elections with 36.8% of the votes. The exit poll by global polling research firm Ipsos shows the party gained 200 seats in the lower house of parliament, short of a majority in the 460-seat CM. Ayusa Menenkovic has more from Warsaw. The polls have closed in Poland. Turnout figures showed that a record number of people voted. It is just an example of how people here consider these elections to be very important to them. Some of the voters we spoke with earlier on Sunday told us that for them, these elections are like referendum about the future of country. On one side, they have the ruling PIS party, which advocates tougher immigration rules, fewer links with the EU, more independence in decision-making, and stopping arms supplies to Ukraine. On the other side, the Civic Platform Party offers almost absolutely the opposite of the PIS party. They want to continue an unconditional arms supply to Ukraine, relax immigration rules, introduce more integration into the EU, and promote more civil liberties. But as opinion polls say, the PIS party has the advantage in these elections, and none of the parties would be able to win an absolute majority of 231 seats in the lower house of the parliament, and the coalition would be inevitable. So the post-election mathematics and inter-party trading will in the end decide who will lead Poland in the next four years and in which direction. That was Sojusa Milinkovic on the Polish parliamentary elections. Turning to the elections in the South American country of Ecuador, where presidential candidate Luisa González has conceded to rival Daniel Noboa. 35-year-old Noboa is now on track to become the country's youngest president. Dan Collins has more from the national capital. Daniel Noboa is a 35-year-old heir to one of the wealthiest families in Ecuador. And the second candidate is a leftist lawyer, Luisa González. Both candidates talk about how they want to combat the, this unprecedented spike in violent crime in the country. Um, for example, they've both pledged to take a hardline approach to security, promised to militarize ports and airports to stem drug trafficking. Uh, they have both come up with different ideas about how to do that. But they also differ on how to tackle the stagnating economy in the country and the rise in poverty and unemployment. Uh, Naboa, for example, who calls himself the employment candidate, has pledged jobs for the young and that he will attract foreign investment and cut taxes. Ecuadorians in general are terrified of the rise in violent crime in the country and they also want uh, to, the, the candidates to tackle the problems of the economy which is, is not, mo not, not moving forward and also unemployment which has reached highs and record highs in the country and hasn't seemed to have improved much uh, since uh, the lows of the COVID-19 pandemic. The outgoing president Guillermo Lasso in May uh, dissolved Congress to avoid impeachment. That was reporting from Quito. Sunday saw another powerful earthquake hitting Afghanistan. This came after strong tremors and aftershocks hit the same region a week ago. The Taliban government is urging national and international organizations for support as it tries to support local reconstruction efforts. Zamari Ali Abbasan reports from Herat. According to the authorities, more than 1,000 people died and more than 2,000 people were injured by the recent string of earthquakes in several districts of Herat province. Local authorities say hundreds of households were affected by the earthquake. In Herat province, in the Jan district, 
several villages were completely destroyed. The Herat Provincial Governor Office says they are finalizing the surveys and are now working on specifying the appropriate areas to build new houses. But international support is extremely needed. The regional leadership of Herat province finished surveying the areas in close consultation with the local residents and generous Afghan businessmen. We are ready to build them suburban towns. According to the affected families and authorities in the Taliban-led government, temporary shelters and relief aid is important. But it cannot solve the problem as winter will be arriving soon. There was Zimmer ally Abbasin in Afghanistan. Restoration of the local cultural heritage damaged by a deadly earthquake last month is underway in the Moroccan city of Marrakesh. The 6.8 magnitude quake that claimed nearly 3,000 lives in the African country also damaged many historical sites. Among the sites is the old city of Marrakesh, UNESCO World Heritage Site, built in the 12th century. The Timor Mosque close to the epicenter suffered the most severe damage. Historian Rachid Chami says reconstructing those monuments is of great historical significance. The historical monuments constitute the Moroccan identity and the authentic Moroccan culture. In fact, the name Morocco was derived from the name Marrakech. Therefore, Morocco was known as Marrakech. So there is no doubt that it is known through the Qutubia Mosque, the Minera and other monuments, which are a symbol of the Moroccan civilization. Restoration has begun in all the Jewish quarter in Marrakech and other parts of the city frequently visited by tourists. Now let's check the weather. Beijing is 8 overnight, tomorrow cloudy with a high of 21. Chongqing is 20 this evening, tomorrow cloudy with a high of 28. Lhasa is 4 overnight, tomorrow cloudy with 17. Hong Kong is 25 tonight, tomorrow heavy rain with a high of 27. Elsewhere, Tokyo is 15 overnight. It'll be sunny with 25 on Tuesday. Islamabad has scattered showers with 16 tonight, tomorrow showers and 22. Bangkok is 26 overnight and thunderstorms and 34 on Tuesday. In Africa, Nairobi, thunderstorms with a high of 28. Time for a short break. So far this hour, world leaders are arriving in Beijing for the third Belt and Road Forum. China attracts a wave of foreign entrepreneurs from BRI countries. Australians reject a proposal over indigenous rights. Sui with you. Stay with us here on the Beijing Hour. Experience the musical classics of the East. Mingle with the masters of Chinese music. Music talks. Witness the sound of antiquity and modernity. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. We then learn to speak. Though our languages, cultures and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. German Railway Company Hear the difference with CGTN Radio. Join our global network to connect with the world. CGTN Radio. Hear the difference.
I love you. 我爱你 This might be the easiest way to say I love you, since there are so many other romantic expressions. No matter if you're a rookie, 你好，我的中文一点点。Or a sophisticated learner, 我来北京五年了，我是本地人。There is definitely something that will interest you. Check out Takeaway Chinese, a world that starts with 你好。Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour. One hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host, Sui, with you on this Monday. Still to come in business, China continues to expand support for global companies. In sports, Zheng Qingwen triumphs on home soil to win the Zhengzhou title. In culture and entertainment, the Ninth Silk Road International Arts Festival opens in Xi'an. To contact us, you can email audionewsroom@cgtn.com or follow our X account, formerly Twitter, at CGTN Radio. But first, today's headlines: World leaders are flying to Beijing for the third Belt and Road Forum for International Cooperation as the initiative reaches a 10-year milestone. Serbian President Aleksandar Vučić, Egyptian Prime Minister Mustafa Mabouli, and Lao President Tonon Sisoleth are the latest guests to arrive for the forum. Among other leaders that earlier landed in the Chinese capital are Cambodian Prime Minister Hamanet and Papua New Guinea Prime Minister James Marape. Representatives from more than 140 countries and 30 international organizations have confirmed their attendance at the forum. A China-invested airport in Cambodia has begun operations with the landing of its first flight on Monday, covering an area of 700 hectares. The Siem Reap Angkor International Airport. Is located only about 40 kilometers from the UNESCO-listed Angkor Archaeological Park. As an iconic project under the Belt and Road Initiative, the new air hub is expected to further spur the growth of the country's tourism sector. The Sri Lankan president says the historic Robert Rice Pact is signed with China, still has influence on bilateral collaboration, even though it expired decades ago. Ranil Wickramasinghe says the pact serves as an excellent example that helps his country realize it should strive to sign trade agreements with every country. The Rubber Rice Pact is very important because it was the first bilateral agreement signed after Sri Lanka gained independence. It's especially significant as it was signed with an Asian country, a developing nation. The Rubber Rice Pact played a crucial role in promoting Sri Lanka's economic development. Through mutual assistance, Sri Lanka and China both overcame difficulties. He adds that Sri Lanka has joined the Belt and Road Initiative proposed by China to continue the legacy of the pact. The Belt and Road cooperation isn't limited to Sri Lanka and China, but extends to many countries worldwide with whom China has trade agreements. Our collaboration encompasses not just trade, but also infrastructure and investment. Participating in a Belt and Road Initiative is a good beginning for us and a direction we will continue to focus on. The Rubber Rice Pact was signed in December 1952, allowing China to exchange its surplus rice for much-needed rubber, which Sri Lanka saw as a key export. The agreement was effective until 1982. According to TASS news agency, Russia has introduced a temporary restriction on fish and seafood imports from Japan. It says the new rule comes into official effect on Monday. China is communicating and coordinating with parties concerned with the Israel-Palestine conflict to prevent further escalation and humanitarian disasters. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi held separate phone call talks with his Turkish and Iranian counterparts. 
Speaking with the Turkish Foreign Minister Hakan Fidan, Wang said self-defense needs to comply with international humanitarian law and should not be at expense of innocent civilian casualties. Both sides stressed the two-state solution as the only viable path forward. While expressing hopes for a political solution with the Iranian Foreign Minister, Wang voiced China's support to Islamic countries in strengthening coordination on the Gaza crisis. In an effort to push for peace talks between Palestine and Israel, China's special envoy to the Middle East, Jai Jun, will be visiting several countries in the region later this week. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is back to Israel after talks in six Arab states. His tour was aimed at coordinating efforts against Hamas while finding ways to alleviate Gaza's looming humanitarian crisis and came just four days after he paid a lightning visit to Israel to show solidarity. At the airport, the secretary said he heard widespread opposition against Hamas but also alarm and concern for Palestinian civilians. Blinken will next be meeting Israeli leaders in Jerusalem as Israel prepares a major ground operation in the Gaza Strip. His presence in the region comes as President Joe Biden is reportedly considering an invitation to visit Israel to demonstrate further what the U.S. leader has described as an wavering solidarity. Syria's transport ministry says flights have resumed at the Aleppo airport after damage caused by Israeli attacks was fixed. Airports in the northern city of Aleppo and the capital Damascus went out of service following Israeli forces strikes last Thursday. Sources have said strikes on the airports are intended to disrupt Iranian supply lines to Syria. Daniel Noboa has won Ecuador's presidential election with more than 52% of the vote. The 35-year-old former legislator will become the country's youngest president. He defeated Luisa Gonzalez in a run-up vote. Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese says he takes full responsibility for the failure to win enough support to pass the Indigenous Voice to Parliament referendum. Voters overwhelmingly rejected the proposal to change the constitution to establish an Indigenous advisory body to the federal parliament. Southwest China's Xizang has achieved 5G network coverage in all towns after a 5G base station went into operation in Gongmon Township of Nagre Prefecture. The Regional Communications Administration says the autonomous region has invested 3.2 billion yuan or about 445.7 million U.S. dollars in building 5G infrastructure. Official data shows the region now has over 8,700 5G-based stations, providing 5G services for around 1.8 million users. This is Sui in the Chinese capital coming up in business. China continues to expand support for global companies. Climate Watch is CGTN Radio's new podcast focusing on the impact of climate change. We have conversations with people on the front line about this critical issue. Listen to Climate Watch on all major podcast platforms and join us in taking action to save the planet we call home. 37 minutes past the hour. Stock markets on the Chinese mainland finished lower on Monday. Timothy Pope has more. Uh, starting with uh, the Chinese mainland, we saw the Shanghai Composite Index declining about half of 1%. Uh, the Shenzhen component fell 1.4% to end the day below the psychologically significant 10,000-point level. Chinese oil refiner stocks were still on top despite crude prices easing back a little bit uh, after Friday's 6% surge. But uh, we were still seeing prices uh, around or a bit below 90 US dollars a barrel for Brent crude and uh, WTI. Uh, PetroChina was 
the biggest contributor to gains on the Shanghai Composite. It added 1.7%. Other fossil fuel energy stocks were also uh, doing pretty well. Though. We saw the coal producer Shenhua Energy uh, adding 2.1%. There was also some good news for the major banks uh, that came after the People's Bank of China rolled over its medium-term lending facility loans and uh, effectively uh, added almost 290 billion yuan of fresh liquidity into the banking system. So we saw uh, ICBC, of course, uh, China's biggest lender, uh, up by about six tenths of one percent. But uh, there really wasn't much strength around in the markets. The trade was pretty slow, and uh, the losses for real estate, consumer, tech, and of course, uh, well, health healthcare stocks as well, uh, really outweighed uh, any of the gains that we saw around. There was market analyst Timothy Pope in Shanghai. In Hong Kong, the Hansen Index was down nearly one percent. In Japan, the Nikkei dropped over two percent. The Chinese Commerce Ministry says the country will provide more opportunities for foreign companies looking to enter the Chinese market. According to the ministry, the government will continue to improve the business environment for international firms and provide service assurance. Meanwhile, the ministry released the country's first foreign trade guideline to help Chinese enterprises better explore the international market. The guideline involves 20 countries selected from China's top 40 export destinations, such as the United States and the United Arab Emirates. The guideline gives an extensive introduction to trade-related policies, imports and exports, cross-border e-commerce platforms and trade promotion institutions. The second edition on the rest of the 20 nations will be released by the end of this month. This year marks the 10th anniversary of the Belt and Road Initiative. Proposed by China, the initiative has brought tangible economic benefits to the world in the past decade. Michael Wang has details. Over the past decade, Belt and Road projects have set the stage to create more economies of scale. By bolstering interconnectivity, slashing down on transportation and other cross-border costs, these projects have made it easier to fine-tune the divisions of labor, stretch out industrial chains, and achieve bigger economic gains. Now, lately, there has been a slowdown in infrastructure investment growth, but that's only one side of the coin, the demand side. If we flip to the supply side, we see that previous investments have already set the wheels of production in motion. The full economic efficiency of these projects is likely to manifest itself in about a decade's time or more. The digital age has further supercharged the benefits of economies of scale. That's because digital products and services have a lower marginal cost, and that gives companies a better chance to grow and also foster stronger connections along the supply chain. Over the past decade, the Belt and Road Initiative has catalyzed nearly one trillion U.S. dollars in investment and pulled some 40 million people out from poverty. From 2013 to 2022, the trade volume between China and Belt and Road nations doubled to over two trillion U.S. dollars, growing at an average annual pace of 8%. If we take a look at two-way investment during this period, the total between China and Belt and Road nations has now topped over 270 billion U.S. dollars. That was Michael Wong reporting. The Belt and Road Initiative has brought some more specialty products from partner countries to the Chinese market, giving opportunities for merchants in China to expand their business. At the Dongxing Port, a facility linking China and Vietnam in Guangxizhuang Autonomous Region, there are diverse kinds of specialties from BRI countries. Local business runners have seen good sales of these products thanks to the special geographical advantage of the street. I've been selling Southeast Asian specialties for several years, and the sales of snacks are the best. In the future, I will sell more kinds of Southeast Asian specialties. 
I've been doing business in Zhongxin for more than a decade. In the past, we only sold Vietnamese products. Now, we can get more products from other countries since the Belt and Road Initiative was launched. I hope that more tourists can come to experience the customs here. China mainly imported durians from Thailand in the past. Last year, China and Vietnam signed an agreement which allows Vietnamese durians to enter the Chinese market from July this year. The 134th China Import and Export Fair is underway in Guangzhou, Guangdong Province, with throngs of visitors showing up on the first day. The event, also known as the Canton Fair, runs online and in person in three phases until November the 4th. The first phase lasts for five days until Thursday, with a focus on advanced manufacturing and innovative technologies. Organizers say over 100,000 buyers from more than 200 countries and regions have registered for the event. The number of exhibitors signed up for this year's event has surpassed 28,530, an increase of over 3,000 from last year. That number includes 650 import exhibitors from 43 countries and regions, over half of which are BRI countries. Booth numbers are set to reach an unprecedented 74,000, growing nearly 4,600 from the 133rd edition. A growing number of e-commerce business purveyors in Thailand are eager to export more products to China, with many taking advantage of the country's open and thriving digital platforms. One local boxing gear manufacturer regularly ships off boxes of gloves as soon as they are packaged. Sales manager of the factory Tanianpor Larisapanit says they've seen a sharp uptake in demand for their products in recent years. In recent years, the sales volume of our products on Chinese e-commerce platforms has kept surging. Their platforms have maturely developed and offer diverse marketing methods, so our sales in China increased by tens of millions yuan within five years. According to insiders, the most popular e-commerce platforms in Thailand, such as Lazada and Shopee, all have learned from China in operating models and marketing methods. Meanwhile, smoother transportation between the two countries has also helped ensure booming trade. Bilateral transaction value between China and member countries of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations is estimated to surpass 1 trillion yuan, or around 136.8 billion U.S. dollars, in 2025. Recent industry reports have highlighted China's advances in the information technology field this year, especially in the cloud computing industry. Data from the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology show that in the first half of this year, the value of China's cloud computing market exceeded 260 billion yuan, or about 36 billion U.S. dollars, up more than 40 percent year on year. China's major telecommunications companies and internet companies increased their investment in the industry. The revenue of cloud-related businesses of the country's three major telecom operators reached 113.6 billion yuan. Catching up with almost 80% of last year's revenue in only six months. Meanwhile, Chinese technology and internet firms are also expanding their business overseas, including in Southeast Asia. Today marks the fifth anniversary of the construction of Hainan Free Trade Port. Over the past five years, the average annual growth rate of Hainan's foreign trade import and export has reached over 23%. Lin Wu spoke with some executives to learn more about their business operations and investment. Xing Binbin, a Hong Kong resident, has ancestral roots in Wenchang, Hainan. His family-owned enterprise, Shiny Day Group, has invested in the Wenchang Supercomputing Center project in the Wenchang International Aerospace City. 
The center is now in the final stages of construction. To date, the total investment in the Wenchang Supercomputing Center project has exceeded 20 billion yuan. The project has gained strong support from the Hainan government, both in terms of policies and taxation. The development of Hainan's high-tech industry has also entered the fast lane. Currently, the global transfer base for the introduction of animal and plant germplasm resources in Hainan is under construction. Hainan Jingang Biotech Company Limited, which is also funded by Hong Kong Capital, is looking forward to the completion of the base and has expanded its industrial layout in Hainan. We have recently developed about 40 hectares of land in Chiang The government has given us support in many aspects. Since April 13, 2018, when Hainan started the construction of its free tree port, the province has locked over 2,360 new Hong Kong-funded enterprises, accounting for 41.6% of the total newly foreign-funded enterprises in the province. The total amount of Hong Kong capital invested reached around 72 billion yuan, accounting for 73.4% of the actual total amount of foreign investment used in Hainan. Next, Hainan will introduce more favorable policies to promote economic and trade connections with Hong Kong via major platforms, such as the Boao Forum for Asia and the China International Consumer Products Expo. The Hong Kong Trade Development Council has participated in the expo for three consecutive years. Then the process are eagerly anticipating the fourth Hana Expo, and we will continue to provide them with high-quality services. The service center facilitates the connection of resources for young entrepreneurs from Hong Kong and Macau to boost their investment confidence. That was Lin Wu reporting. You're listening to the Beijing Hour coming up in sports. Zheng Qingwen triumphs on home soil to win the Zhengzhou title. Sideline Story brings you all things sports-related. The hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story Podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world. It's 48 minutes past the hour, turning to sports. Here is Brendan Yates. Thank you, Sui. We begin with tennis, and Zhang Qinwen defeated number 7 seed Barbara Krijkikova to win the Zhang Zhao Open. Zhang thrilled her homeland crowds as the Chinese number 1 pulled off a 2-6-6-2-6-4 victory to claim the title. Well, when I was on the court finished the last point, I was feeling super happy, and all the crowd, they support me a full. In that moment, the feeling was unexplainable, and you know, because I feel I got win here, you know, in Zhengzhou, we are in China, finally have a chance to play in my country. I got good preparation, my body is ready, everything is there, and right now I'm just feeling super happy, wants to enjoy the time with my team. In their first Korea meeting, Jung took 2 hours and 26 minutes to notch the comeback victory over Krej Kikova. The victory marks her second WTA Tour title of the season and her career. Herbert Hercats won the ATP Shanghai Masters by defeating 5th seed Andrei Rublev on Sunday. The Poland native defeated Russia's Rublev 6-3-3-6-7-6 to capture his second career ATP 1000 Masters title. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what to say. I mean, it's such a battle, especially, you know, emotionally. 
had a match point before Andre hit amazing serve, then Andre had some match points, then I had some match points, so we were just, you know, going back and forth, and it was just such a tricky match. I mean, Andre was playing some really great shots. I was, you know, I was trying to respond with some good ones as well, but uh, yeah, we just, you know, just one of those matches, just just gotta stay in it, believe it, uh, keep believing till, till the end, and uh, yeah, just super happy how I managed at the end. Nearly two years ago, her cats got his first ATP Masters 1000 crown in Miami in 2021. After the match, her cats wrote thank you in Chinese on the camera to show his appreciation, which caused a buzz on social media in China. South Africa will be the fourth and final semi-finalists at the 2023 Rugby World Cup as they knocked out hosts France in the quarters. The Springboks remain in the hunt to retain their 2019 title after claiming a 29-28 win in a titanic clash at the Stade de France. South Africa held a slender one-point lead for the remaining few minutes of the match despite immense attacking pressure applied on them by the French. South Africa wing Cheslin Colby says they deserved the victory. I'll be quite honest with you, um, we just didn't want to have any regrets once that final whistle went and each and every player management um, throughout this week in terms of preparation has given everything, spent extra hours and had paid off tonight um, but also just want to say that uh, I feel for the French boys uh, as well being at home, um, at least tough, it's a lot of expectation uh, on, on them. Prior to this match, 2003 winners England secured their semi-final clash against South Africa as they defeated a spirited Fijian side 30-24. In football news, Lionel Messi's Inter Miami have announced that they will embark on a two-game postseason tour of China. Just over two weeks after their 2023 MLS campaign ends, Inter Miami will travel to face Chinese Super League sides Qingdao Hainu FC and Chengdu Rongchen on November 5th and 8th respectively. Messi has played in only two of the team's past seven MLS games because of a hamstring injury. If healthy, the Argentine legend, who has scored 11 goals in his first season with Miami, will certainly be the main attraction for fans attending games on this two-game tour of China. Senior sports official Song Kai has been officially elected president of the Chinese Football Association. The 58-year-old served as the head of the administration of sport in Liaoning province and has been working as vice head of the preparatory group for the CFA election since June. Chinese women's football legend Sun Wen is among the four vice presidents of the CFA. In addition, the 20-member executive committee includes women's star footballer Wang Shuang, former China captain Zhang Ji and representatives from the Chinese Super League clubs and other sectors. And finally, in swimming, Chinese Olympic champion Zhang Yufei refreshed her event record at the second leg of the FINA World Cup in Athens, Greece on Sunday. Zhang managed to clock 56.06 seconds in the women's 100-meter butterfly final. Meanwhile, Chin Haiyang and Dong Ji Hao achieved a 1-2 finish in the men's 200-meter breaststroke final. Zhang rounded up her campaign in Athens with two golds and one silver. Chin pocketed all breaststroke gold medals as he did before in the World Championships in Fukuoka. Thank you very much. The Beijing Hour. Hello, I'm Peter Dinklage from X-Men, Days of Future Past. You are listening to The Beijing Hour. Hi, I'm Kathy Freeman, and you're listening to The Beijing Hour. Hi everyone, I'm Lang Lang. Welcome to the Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour, your window to China and the world. 
to culture and entertainment, Yang Guang joins us now. Thank you, Suyi. Xi'an in Shanxi Province is hosting the 9th Silk Road International Arts Festival, attracting artists from over 90 countries and regions. The two-week festival consists of various events, including opening and closing ceremonies, shows, and exhibitions. The first Silk Road International Arts Festival was held in 2014, making this year the 10th edition. An exhibition highlighting the cultural relics and archaeological cooperation along the Belt and Road is now underway at the Palace Museum in Beijing. The show reveals the historical trajectory of the growing communication between ancient Chinese and world civilizations. Ding Siyue spoke to Xu Haifeng with the Archaeology Department of the Palace Museum. Divided into four sections, this exhibition showcases 84 sets of exhibits, with 51 sets hailing from overseas. Many of these cultural relics are being displayed to the public for the first time. Relics from countries along the Belt and Road provide new materials and perspectives for the study of cultural and artistic exchanges between China and other countries. Two pieces were returned to China on May 9 by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office in the United States. They have survived from the Northern Dynasties and the Sui Dynasty. Panels were part of the stone screens used in ancient tombs, showcasing lifelike representations and exquisite craftsmanship. They reflect the beliefs of the Sajian people, who were known to be skilled merchants and were active along the ancient Silk Road. Among the exhibits, these porcelain fragments hold extraordinary significance. They traveled overseas more than 600 years ago to the Arabian Peninsula and have now been rediscovered through joint archaeological efforts, resulting in their return to their long-lost homeland. In 2019, we carried out a project in Ras Al Khaimah, United Arab Emirates, where we excavated and unearthed artifacts that were clearly produced in China. These include blue and white porcelain fragments. Longchuan celadon fragments and pieces of porcelain from Dehua kilns. Through the analysis of pattern characteristics, glaze testing, and comparisons with similar artifacts, experts have preliminarily determined that these porcelain pieces date back to the early Ming Dynasty. They were most likely brought here by means of official trade or tribute trade, such as through Zheng He's voyages to the west. This conclusion was drawn from the presence of architectural remains and relics at the site, indicating it was a port or a small transit hub. These precious cultural relics showcase the achievements of joint archaeological efforts and the preservation and restoration of historical sites. They also show the exchanges of intangible cultural heritage that took place along the ancient Silk Road, revealing the historical trajectory of mutual learning. That was Ding Siyue in Beijing. The Exorcist Believer drove out all foes at the North American box office, but its numbers didn't entirely make heads spin. What you're doing here is dangerous. People have died. Facing competition、sides. from no major new releases, the latest installment of the franchise brought in 27.2 million U.S. dollars in its opening weekend. That was more than the weekend take of the next three films combined. Last week's top film, Paul Patrol's Mighty Movie, was a distant second with 11.8 million. Another horror sequel, Saw 10, was third for Lionsgate Films. Horror films made up four of the top ten, and they could see some sustained numbers. As Halloween comes closer.
And finally, the Beijing Music Festival came to an end on Sunday night with a closing concert held at the capital's Poli Theatre. The grand finale of the festival took the theme "New Beginnings," first introducing the world premiere of Big Bang by Wang Ying. This was followed by Mahler's Lieder eines Wandern Gesellen and Sir George Benjamin's At First Light, written when the British composer was only 22. The second half of the program concluded the entire festival with Dvorak's Ninth Symphony from the New World, an innovative work that opened a new vista more than a century ago. Thank you very much. That was Yang Guang with Culture and Entertainment. A quick check on the weather: Beijing is eight overnight. Tomorrow cloudy with a high of 21. Chongqing is 20 this evening. Tomorrow cloudy with a high of 28. Lhasa is 4 overnight. Tomorrow cloudy with 17. Hong Kong is 25 tonight. Tomorrow heavy rain with a high of 27. And that's it for this edition of the Beijing Hour. Making news today: World leaders are arriving in Beijing for the third Belt and Road Forum. China attracts a wave of foreign entrepreneurs from BRI countries. Australians reject a proposal over indigenous rights. On behalf of the staff, this is Sui in the Chinese capital. Hoping you will join us for the next edition of the Beijing Hour and open the window to the world together. Takeaway Chinese, where you can take some Chinese away and experience progress day by day. Takeaway Chinese, we will promise you a difference. Welcome to Roundtable, coming to you live from Beijing. From Beijing. Roundtable. 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 Connecting China and the world. We bring you fun and timely discussions about what's affecting our lives everywhere, every day. Tune in to Roundtable, where the East meets the West, and understanding is the goal. From north to south, east to west. People in China are chasing their dreams and leaving their mark. Want to know how they beat the odds and made a difference? Footprints brings you the true life stories of their journeys. 